Hello and welcome to our next episode of City Speak. I'm Clarence Anthony, your host and CEO and Executive Director of the National League of Cities. We're so excited today that we are recording this episode uh, in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. Mental health is an important issue to all of us and is deeply intertwined with so many other issues that leaders are grappling with every day from substance abuse to homelessness. And today we have an amazing guest from the Biden administration who's going to talk with us about some of these challenges. We're joined today by Tom Coderre, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Mental Health and Substance Use in the Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Clarence. It's great to be with you today. And thank you to the National League of Cities for welcoming us on this podcast uh, to talk a little bit about what we're doing to respond to the mental uh, illness and addiction crisis in this country. Wow, Tom. You know, I have uh, interviewed a number of people uh, with long titles, (laughs) including my own. But man, I think you got it. I mean, how do you introduce yourself? I just say I'm Tom, and it's good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on the award of the longest title uh, that I've interviewed. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about, I mean, currently uh, you lead SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Services Administration and HHS. And prior to your role was the agency's Region 1 Administrating Strader directing all of the operations in Northeast uh, part of America. But you also served as the National Field Director for Faces and Voices for Recovery, a leading advocacy organization for those that are needing for recovery services and served in the Rhode Island Senate for eight years. Man, you had a a great uh, career. Which one of those roles were your favorite role, though? (laughs) Uh, the next one, you know, I guess is always my favorite one. The, you know, I think may have had this experience to Clarence in, in your professional career. Uh, we, you know, we really love the job we're in and, you know, I've, I've had so many amazing opportunities. Um, but most of them, the ones at least, uh, that happened in my personal, after I achieved personal recovery from a substance use disorder which I think we'll get into a little bit during the conversation today, those have been the most meaningful uh, to me because I've been able to really bring uh, a lot of the previous experiences I had and, and blend them uh, with my new life and recovery. Uh, and, and that perspective, I think, has really uh, helped uh, enrich each of those opportunities that I've had. I often say um, I have to pinch myself sometimes to make sure I'm not dreaming because uh, to go from uh, being somebody who had lost everything uh, it, to active addiction, and then to have these opportunities to work at the highest levels of government, uh, it's truly an honor and a privilege. Man, that, that it is an honor and, and a privilege. And I think that sometimes when you you meet people and you ask them what is their why in terms of what they are doing and the impact it's going to have on others, that is an interesting uh, question when you pose that question. No, absolutely. And I think people in recovery, 
um, really value story. You know, our there's really power in our stories, and um, each of us have gone through experiences um, and come out the other side, and now have these uh, stories that really help point to the why, help point to the passion um, that we have for the work that we do, and I think that's an incredible way to be able to live your life. And what do they say? If you're doing something you're passionate about or you enjoy, you never work a day in your life. That is true. Uh, but you need to get paid too. So I think <laughs> being able to work makes a difference. Well, no, no. What I'm saying though <laughs> is if we get paid for the things that we enjoy, right? We never really work, truly work a day in our lives. I mean, some people unfortunately dread going to work every day and, and yeah. I don't have one of those jobs. I uh, get up and I'm ready to tackle my job every day because um, I'm getting the opportunity to give other people the same thing that I got, which is access to maybe to uh, a treatment program, access uh, to a network of people in recovery, access to recovery support services that help them sustain their recovery on a daily basis. Uh, when you are able to share those things with people and watch them grow and flourish the way you grew and flourished, it's really an amazing kind of life coming full circle. I agree. So, you know, there's a lot of acronyms in the federal government. <laughs> and when people hear SAMHSA, they probably think of so many other things than uh, a program uh, that is providing services. Uh, talk a little bit about the agency and the services it provides for uh, people across America. Sure. Well, SAMHSA um, stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, we are a health-promoting um, grant funding and service delivery agency. Many people know us because of our fund, you know, the funding that we provide, but we do so much more than that. You know, we really provide uh, leadership and voice to the field. Uh, we do practice improvement. We do regulation and st standard setting. Um, there's so much else that we do. And, and, and most people think that we're maybe some kind of private nonprofit, but we're really not. We're, as you mentioned at the top of the show, we're a division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. There's 11 operational divisions. Most people know about the CDC or the FDA or CMS, um, but we uh, are a small but mighty operational division as well, uh, one of those 11. Uh, and our mission is to lead public health and service delivery efforts that promote mental health, prevent substance misuse, and provide uh, treatments and supports uh, to foster recovery. Uh, we want people uh, that um, have uh, or have been affected by or are at risk for some type of mental health or substance use condition to receive the care they need um, to achieve well-being and to thrive in their community. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of this work, um, we want to make sure we're ensuring equitable access to services and supports uh, so that people have better outcomes. Uh, we've identified five key priority areas uh, that better meet the behavioral health needs of individuals, communities, and service providers. We want to, and those five are preventing overdose, enhancing access to suicide prevention and crisis care, promoting resilience and emotional health for children, youth, and families, integrating behavioral health and physical health care, something we've been trying to do for a long time, and of course, uh, strengthening the behavioral health workforce. Those are all big, big priorities uh, for us and things that we think are um, challenges right now for our country. Um, a prime example of this is our Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 
which uh, transitioned last July to 988, an easy to remember three-digit number. Uh, the Biden-Harris administration has made an unprecedented investment, um, along with the help of Congress, of nearly $1 billion to support the 98 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, including an initial $432 million to support its transition last year. We really needed to build up crisis center capacity uh, and to provide uh, special services, including a sub-network for Spanish speakers. Uh, additional funding for the 98 Lifeline has been provided by the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, um, and the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act uh, last year. Prior to these large investments, the Lifeline, which had existed since uh, 2005 uh, as that 1-800 number that people used to call, um, had long been underfunded. And as a result, uh, we've had to do a lot of work with, with uh, cities uh, and local communities, been big supporters, and have usually participated mostly uh, with volunteers and, and, and kind of have stitched together local funding to fund these resources. Now we have this uh, real vibrant lifeline called 988 uh, that's funded with federal resources. And so we're, we're really looking forward uh, to continuing to build that out and to make sure that people have an easy uh, three-digit number to call, uh, somebody to respond, uh, and a place to go if they need help. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, the, the thing that is important in terms of your leadership is all of those are federal policies and programs that are can be accessed by local governments, county governments, and others uh, to assist uh, individuals in cities, towns, and villages all over America. And the special thing about you and your leadership of these initiatives is that you have lived experience. Uh, because you are in recovery uh, right now. Talk a little bit about how your personal journey has influenced how you are leading and the impact that you'd like to have uh, on the role that you are in. Sure. No, thank you for the opportunity to do that, Clarence. You know, I came from a good, uh, loving family, and I had many friends by the time I was 30 years old. I was working in nonprofit management and development. And had a love for politics. As you talked about, I was an elected member of the Rhode Island State Senate when I was just 25 years old. And, you know, on the outside, everything about my life looked normal. Uh, some would even say perfect. But on the inside, um, I was tortured. Uh, I was having a lot of difficulties. And so I turned uh, first to alcohol and then to other drugs to cope with the stresses that I was experiencing. I was underestimating the power of those substances. I really didn't understand uh, the neurological consequences of taking them. And so I quickly became addicted. And my life started this downward spiral. Uh, as my life began to unravel, I started to lose the things that were most important to me. When my family and friends uh, tried to help me, I pushed them away, uh, resisted their help. That caused me to lose them. Um, I ended up uh, losing interest in uh, politics eventually. I uh, lost my job at that nonprofit and my position in the Senate. My health deteriorated. I lost my apartment uh, and I became homeless. Uh, I lost my spirit. 
I lost my freedom. And in the end, I lost everything, uh, even my desire to live. And so my life, which at one time was so full of hope, uh, became hopeless. And fortunately, uh, my story doesn't end there, uh, as you know, because I'm here on this podcast with you. Uh, I was able to get the help that I needed. And today I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't used alcohol or drugs. And I've been dealing with my mental health conditions uh, since May 15th of 2003. So last week I celebrated 20 years on this journey. And it's just been an incredible uh, blessing for me. You know, and I know that's probably odd for me to say it's a blessing to have gone through all of that. Uh, but it's really given me an opportunity, as you just alluded to in your question, uh, to bring a different perspective uh, to this work. You know, of course, we have a lot of qualified people who work at SAMHSA who have uh, advanced degrees, uh, who've gone to school for a long time, who've done a lot of research, um, who have uh, been in uh, in, in practice uh, in local communities around this country. And I'm grateful uh, for all of those folks. But bringing the voice of lived experience into this process really helps inform it um, in a way that it hadn't been informed before. Uh, and, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of my friends uh, in recovery, uh, when they found out I was going to work at SAMHSA, had a lot of advice for me and, and asked <laughs> me to bring some of their uh, you know, their concerns uh, to the federal government. But what uh, I've been able to do mostly since arriving uh, back at SAMHSA is set up an office of recovery, where now we have uh, 10 people who are watching out for all of our notice of funding opportunities, that are reading all of our publications and documents, um, that are sitting on cross-agency work groups, that are around the tables with all of those other professionals and folks um, who have uh, who have really at, been at the top of their careers, but they're getting informed now uh, and getting opinions from people with that lived experience. And I think that's that's just making us a better agency. It's making our programming um, really be more culturally competent, um, and it's helping us meet people where they are um, on the ground uh, all over this nation, uh, in no matter what community you live in. Well, Tom. Yeah, well, I, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you sharing uh, that story and me knowing that you're there. You know, the impact that it has, not just on the individual, but the family. Well, you know, I remember probably in fourth grade when every Saturday morning I'd look out the door and there's my dad in the car drunk. Mm. And eventually he disappeared. And you know, I look back in, in graduation from high school, you know, in the, in, in the theater department, uh, awards, and he was never there, but he, he was homeless mm. on the streets. Um, and we could never, we would bring him back home and, and help him, but he could never kick the demon, if you will, and the challenge that he had. But the more I get educated and the more I hear about your story and others' stories, I have hope that others' family members will be able to help their family members do this because uh, it has long-term uh, impacts on so many others that are around you as well. Oh, absolutely. And thank you, Clarence, for sharing. You know, that's a very personal story um, that you shared. And, and unfortunately, your dad 
uh, wasn't able to find recovery. And I wonder if, if we had done a better job of engaging, you know, with engagement uh, tools um, that we could have reached him. You know, my story that I share with you is not unique, though. It's the story of 27 million people in America um, and tens, million, tens of millions more um, who have recovered from mental health conditions as well. You know, it really is more and more uh, prevalent than people think that there, there are a lot of people in recovery. But the hard truth is, is that there's tens of millions more that are struggling right now as we're taping this podcast. And how do we reach them? Like, how do we do a better job of working with families and giving them the tools that they need? How do we work with those individuals to bring them across what we call the stages of change? You know, so somebody goes from a pre-contemplative state to a contemplative state to taking some action, positive action in their lives. And how do we support those individuals along across the, the lifetime? I mentioned one of our priorities is that physical health and behavioral health integration. You know, when somebody goes to see a primary care doctor, is that primary care doctor trained uh, to help recognize the signs of a substance use disorder or a mental illness um, and then do the proper referral for that individual? Um, are we have, do we have enough programs out there for folks? You know, these are the things that, um, that keep us, us up at night uh, at SAMHSA every day. You know, thank you for that. And um, I'll also say, you know, you use the term keeping us up at night. About six years ago, and I was going around America speaking, and I get the local newspaper everywhere I go. And I'm from Florida, started there. So South Florida started seeing all of these articles about opioids and deaths. And then Northeast, which was really uh, around a lot of communities, and then the Midwest. And I came back to my staff and I said, I think we have a major issue, a big issue here in America. And so most recently I've started seeing uh, the issue of fentanyl. Uh, and and it's, it's a much stronger drug entering the, entering the conversation. You've been working uh, to help coordinate the federal government strategy to combat opioid epidemic and reduce overdose. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on and the resources that SAMHSA has available to help city leaders to address uh, these challenges because it ends up in communities, cities, towns, and villages, neighborhoods, county facilities. We've identified the issue. Tom, what can we do? And are you seeing the data around opioids and fentanyl increase? Absolutely. Uh, and, and the loss of life uh, through overdose in this country um, has been truly horrific. And our hearts go out uh, to every family who's lost a loved one uh, to this uh, epidemic. But President Biden uh, has addressed this head on uh, in his national drug control strategy. Uh, he's really prioritized uh, the battle against overdose and substance use. Um, Secretary Becerra, our secretary at HHS, has also uh, prioritized this and released an overdose prevention strategy um, comprising of four pillars, primary prevention, harm reduction, evidence-based treatment, and recovery services. Um, our assistant secretary, Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman, um, who 
when she came uh, to SAMHSA, uh, listed as one of her near-term strategic priorities, preventing overdose. So this is like an all-hands-on-deck moment for us and the federal government. You know, during the pandemic, uh, we made, uh, we were able to have flexibilities um, and to allow for folks to receive treatment through telehealth. And we're working to make those things permanent right now. In, you know, just last, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had the expiration of the public health emergency and SAMHSA and DEA uh, proposed a temporary rule that extends the full set of telemedicine flexibilities uh, adopted during the public health emergency for six months. So that's going to be, uh, people will still be able to access those through November 11th uh, of this year. And why is that important? Well, it's important because so many people um, who have been struggling with opioid use disorder, the most effective uh, treatment for that is medications for opioid use disorder, or medication-assisted treatment, as some people refer to it. And so to be able to receive that um, in a, you know, an easy way, right, without barriers, I think is really, really important. Um, and com- complementing those policies uh, are billions of dollars in funding um, that SAMHSA has received, which we, in turn, uh, turn around and put that right back into states and local communities every year to expand access to treatment uh, and supports for people. Um, for example, last year uh, in September, uh, HHS through SAMHSA and our sister agency, the Health Resources Services Administration, HRSA, awarded more than $1.6 million, um, sorry, billion dollars um, for communities throughout the country addressing the addiction and overdose crisis. We at SAMHSA have our state opioid response program and our tribal opioid response program that constituted the lion's share of that funding. Um, our SOAR program addresses the nation's opioid and overdose crisis by providing uh, resources to states, territories, uh, and that all flows down to local communities, of the, the folks that you guys represent, for increasing access uh, to those FDA-approved medications I talked about for the treatment of opioid use disorder, as well as supporting the full continuum uh, of services that people need uh, from treatment uh, right to long-term recovery. Uh, and then we have a tribal program uh, that does the same exact thing. Uh, you've also likely heard about uh, the FDA recently approving uh, the over-the-counter sale of naloxone, the opioid overdose reversing medication. Um, and we applaud uh, this latest step uh, in accessing this life-saving medication. We've been putting it out on every street corner we can for many years now, uh, but to have this available uh, in every pharmacy around the country over the counter, we think is going to be a game changer. Um, we also provide technical assistance and training uh, to healthcare professionals who are in a position, like I said earlier, to screen, uh, to provide substance use disorder treatment. You know, back uh, when the Compre- when the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act passed, um, Congress passed two really important measures as part of the budget this year. One was called um, the MAT Act, um, the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, which removed the uh, waiver requirement for physicians to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, which is really, really important. And then um, there was a companion act called MATE Act, and the MATE Act was the education component to try to make sure that all doctors, anyone who has a DEA license to prescribe uh, controlled substances 
um, has to have at least eight hours worth of education on substance use disorder. We think this is really important too. Most doctors don't receive training in medical schools about this. And so having a way to get folks continuing education so that they know the signs and the symptoms, um, as well as some of the treatment options, we think is going to be an important step uh, to help uh, really turn the tide on this epidemic that is, like you said, uh, started many years ago and is going to, has just gotten worse. We, we lost 107,000 Americans last year to a drug overdose. That's not acceptable. Uh, and we need to do better to try to get our arms around this and try to save lives. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I mean, this is not uh, just uh, an adult uh, challenge and issue. It's impacting our youth. Uh, it's not just an urban and rural challenge. It's a suburban challenge. It's uh, our white population when the opioids in the suburban and then urban. I mean, it's America's issue right now. And uh, I said this before, we're lucky to have you um, in this role because when we get in the bubble of Washington, D.C., we started talking about these issues. That's what our local leaders are here uh, to help you to address some of these challenges. So please know we want to be a partner. You know, as you talked about all of the programs, the initiatives, and you talked about the doctors needing training, uh, is there a challenge or a shortage uh, for behavioral health practitioners uh, to address this, these issues we're having? And what are you doing if there, if there are challenges? Yeah, that, that's a great question. We actually have a huge uh, shortage in people delivering behavioral health services in our country right now. Um, in fact, this is probably the thing I hear more than anything else, uh, that we had an, uh, you know, a crisis of epic proportions prior to the pandemic, right, of people needing mental health services, people needing addiction uh, services. Uh, COVID exacerbated it all, right? Increased substance use, we know, in America's communities. We know that other behavioral health conditions like anxiety, depression, other, you know, more mild and moderate conditions uh, increased, especially in youth. And so people started seeking treatment. People started reaching out and they, what did they find? They found that there were these huge waiting lists uh, to be able to get access to a behavioral health provider. Um, the nation's workforce of mental health and SUD treatment professionals is really critical uh, to providing access to those essential healthcare services. Um, recognizing that a strong behavioral health workforce is critical to providing services um, that meet people where they are. SAMHSA works um, with states and other stakeholders to develop and support recruitment and retention efforts specific to addressing mental health conditions and substance use disorder. Some of those resources I talked about earlier that uh, we're getting out to communities, billions of dollars, uh, it are being used to help uh, recruit and incentivize people to stay in this field. SAMHSA has some authority in this area, uh, but we really have to partner with our uh, sister agency, HRSA that I mentioned earlier, and others, the Department of Labor, um, and other folks around the government uh, to accomplish this goals. Um, we provide numerous pathways also, such as training and technical assistance. We are expanding the use of paraprofessionals uh, and focusing on increased diversity and cultural competency. Uh, 
Um, additionally, uh, peer counselors and paraprofessionals have really shown um, to play a crucial role in extending uh, care to communities. So we are trying to increase the peer workforce um, as a way of, you know, you can bring peers on fairly quickly, you know, uh, minimal amount of training um, and supervision, and they can use their lived experience um, to help people navigate these complex systems and serve, in, in some cases, serve as a gap between, you know, to help fill the gap between the time somebody needs care and they get it. Um, in other cases, even just provide the support that person needs, um, locate other resources in a community uh, to help people uh, if they can't access, you know, a psychiatrist or um, a healthcare professional that they need to see right away. Maybe they can uh, be connected with other levels of care that help bridge the gap until they get to see that uh, that professional that they need to. So we're doing as much as we can. We feel uh, sometimes, Clarence, quite frankly, uh, that we're drinking from fire hoses uh, on all sides. So anything that uh, folks in local communities can do uh, to help us um, get attention to these issues, we really, really appreciate. Yeah, I can tell you that um, everything you talked about during the covid a lot of our local leaders saw it on the ground. In fact, because we saw it in our local leaders, uh, we actually, as the National League of Cities, uh, promoted and asked our members to develop uh, mental health approaches to manage within their own workforce. Right. Uh, and we um, explored and uh, promoted a mental health challenge nice. to our city leaders. Uh, and other associations in Washington, D.C. So we recognize the role of local government in getting funded, funding and support. You know, I, I think if you if you um, had anything that you would want the National League of Cities to do and other local leaders to do, what would that look like in terms of a partnership? Well, first, you know, what you just said about um, the the mental health challenge that you encouraged uh, local communities to take. I want to thank you for that. I think, as I mentioned about my personal experience and about the staff at SAMHSA that have lived experience and are walking our own recoveries, um, when we do that, um, it reinforces uh, for how important it is for leaders to be an example uh, to others. You know, when, when you encourage local communities to take that challenge and show that their own mental health was just as important. You know, we saw large rates of burnout during COVID and mm -hmm. um, people were really just um, taking in too, way too much. So first and foremost, I think that is an important um, thing that local leaders can do. Um, talk openly about their struggles. Um, it really helps normalize the conversations. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, so much of what we do is helping Americans to have an open dialogue in this area. It helps them to relate to each other and to facilitate discussions about the decisions that are necessary to be made in local communities. Um, and having that supported language and shared testimonies and the stories that we talked about are how powerful those are. Um, these are things that uh, help leaders model and make it easier to know that it's okay to reach out for help and to share um, that they're struggling and that they need help. So we stand with um, everyone that's impacted by whether it's an addiction or a mental health condition 
uh, so that more people can begin their journeys and experience the promise and joy of recovery. We want to make sure that uh, local leaders have the resources they need. So uh, if, uh, if folks need help navigating uh, any of the federal resources, uh, we stand ready uh, to help them. Many local leaders have set up, whether it be task forces or uh, local committees um, to help identify and do assessments in local communities of what their needs are and find out where the gaps are. We can then help um, find resources to fill in some of those gaps. So we really think that you know it's important for them to come to the table, to communicate. Uh, we try to make ourselves available uh, as much as possible to have those conversations with local leaders, and we want to continue to be able to do that. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being here and sharing uh, with us You're welcome. Uh, what the work that SAMHSA is doing. To our listeners, again, uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Oh, I wanted to share something about that too. Am I able to? Go for it. So we actually rang in Mental Health Awareness Month with a new online resource that can help people as they begin their search for help and supports. Many people are aware of SAMHSA's treatment locators. We have these online um, sites and phone numbers that people can call and if they need treatment, which is great. But a lot of people said, we need something that helps me even before that. Like, I don't even know what kind of treatment to look for. I don't even know that I need treatment. What can you offer me before that? So as people begin their search for help and supports, um, we developed something called findsupport.gov. And we'd love your listeners to go to findsupport.gov and check it out. Similarly, if people already know they're looking for treatment, they can use the treatment locator at findtreatment.gov or the 1-800-662-HELPLINE. But this other tool really guides somebody uh, through the journey of seeking treatment. Like, what's the first step? What's the second step? It, it's very, and, and it kind of meets somebody where they are and kind of uh, has uh, a kind of continuum where you, if Oh, if you're looking for this, it sends you in this direction to ask a certain set of questions. If you're looking for something else, it'll send you down that path so that you you really feel like you're supported uh, on the journey. So findsupport.gov is a great tool. And of course, if anyone is in a crisis, they should call our 988 um, helpline. You can dial 988, the three-digit uh, number, or you can uh, chat at 988lifeline.org. And it, there's also a texting feature uh, that's available. We know a lot of our, I've got six nieces and nephews. I don't know. <laughs> and, and I, I very rarely talk to them on the phone. They are, are always texting me. So young people can also text to 988 as well. Well, again, City Speak has just been honored to have you, Tom. Uh, Tom Coderre, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Mental Health and Substance Abuse in the Department of Health and Human Services the man with the longest title <laughs> in America, but also the person with some of the greatest resources that America needs right now. And I will tell you uh, that the challenges of mental health uh, in America needs to be focused on. We're lifting it up with our members at the National League of Cities. And finally, I just want to say to you, it has been such an honor to meet you. Um, I've learned so much. It's brought back memories in my personal life. And I hope that people will listen to you and access the services that you have been talking about that you're providing at SAMHSA. You're making an impact. And I want you to know that 
uh, we appreciate you. Well, thank you, Clarence Anthony, and to the National League for allowing us to come on and be able to talk with you about what we're doing uh, and to ask for your help. Uh, we can't do this alone. We would want to do it alone. It's much better having partners like you guys uh, to get this message out. Consider us a partner. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to City Speak with Clarence Anthony. If you like the show, let us know. Share this episode with your friends and make sure to subscribe. We're curious to hear what you think, what you want more of, and how we can improve. If you have feedback or an idea for a guest you'd like Clarence to sit down with, send us your thoughts at citiespeakpodcast at nlc.org. Join us next month for a new episode. Like and subscribe here or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.